My name is Logan Court, and I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. Today, I'm joined by Luis Bonan, the co-founder and CEO of Duolingo. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. My first question for you, Duolingo's mission is to develop the best education in the world, making university available. How does this mission couple with or revise classroom language learning as it is, exists now? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so, you know, the first thing to say is some people think that we're on a mission to substitute language classrooms. That is not the case. We love teachers and we realize that actually Duolingo plus a teacher is better than just Duolingo by itself, but also just than just the teacher by itself. So, you know, our goal is to work with teachers to try to have the best education possible out there. I will say another thing, which is that if you have access to a great teacher, good for you. And that's awesome. And that's, you know, that's a really good way to learn a language. And, uh, you know, couple it with Duolingo, that would be even better. However, most people in the world don't have access to a great teacher. So on our end, our goal is to, even if you don't have access to a great teacher, to give you as good of an education as possible. If you do have access to a great teacher, great. We'll, we'll work with them and it, it'll work together. Today, Duolingo, at least in the US, in K through 12 language classrooms, Duolingo is used in approximately 40% of them in one way or another. So we work a lot with educators and we love them. This is not, it's, it's, it is not the case that some people have been out there trying to say that we our goal is to substitute teachers. It has never been. And a lot of your services, including like your newly introduced grading of free writing, is deeply embedded with AI. And what do you think AI's place in education should be? I think it's very important. We, we spend a lot of effort on AI. We have a lot of, a lot of people with PhDs in AI to try to you know, improve how well we teach. At a very high level, what we're trying to do is whenever we get a new person learning on Duolingo, the first thing we got to figure out is how much they know. Because everybody comes in with different amounts of knowledge. And then immediately after that, take them to kind of the, the frontier of their knowledge and expand it from there as fast as possible. All of that inherently needs AI. First of all, we need to figure out how much they know. Well, that needs AI, figuring out how much you know. And then taking it to the frontier of their knowledge, you also need AI to kind of make it so that, okay, we make a curriculum specifically for you so that it's mm-hmm. in the frontier of your knowledge. And then, and then we got to keep observing you, know, like, oh, uh, uh, you're getting frustrated. No, I'll stop and I'll do something less frustrating. So all of that, you know, basically we need something that is, that is really adaptive to the student that kind of inherently needs AI. In the age of virtual learning, how have Duolingo for schools and other classroom learning programs been a useful tool and how do you see it being used in the future? Well, hopefully it's been a useful tool for teachers. I mean, we, my, my goal is that teachers end up doing whatever they're very good at and Duolingo should do whatever it is very good at. Duolingo is very good at repetition and dealing with, you know, basically giving you exercises, kind of an infinite number of exercises and uh, making that fun. Teachers, I think, are not particularly that good at uh, that, but they are good at motivating. They're good at explaining certain concepts that are hard to explain. They're good at putting things into context. So all of that, teachers continue doing that. And so my sense is that, you know, each of the two entities should do whatever they're best at. Uh, in several of your earlier talks, you've decided that you want to make time spent on the internet more useful. Yeah. And that was part of the driving force for creation of caption and recaptures. How has this philosophy driven your work since then and has it changed over time? It, it has changed over time. I mean, my sense is that yeah, I, I do want to make time on the internet more useful. And this is why we spend time trying to teach people languages as opposed to being on social media, which I think is a little less useful. So in that case, it, it's the same, but it has changed in that... I think over time, I, I try more and more to work on things that I think are um, impactful to the individual, not just as a human race. Uh, and so 
you know, with reCAPTCHA, whenever people were typing a CAPTCHA, this was not impactful to the individual. If anything, it was annoying to the individual. Uh, whereas now I think I'm trying to do the things that are just positively impactful for, for each individual. And then also kind of focusing on how the how your careers transitioned. Uh, one of your early goals for Duolingo is to help language learners learn for free. Mm -hmm. And now Duolingo is a publicly traded company with a pay structure involved. How is, has this goal become more or less feasible? Yeah, by the way, the goal still remains that learn for free as possible if mm -hmm. they can't afford it. We're a publicly traded company, yes, and we do make money. But I mean, ultimately, I really believe that us being a public, publicly traded company, that also makes money, helps us in our ultimate goal. Because what is if there's a way to think about Duolingo, what, here's what's happening in Duolingo. In the United States, people are learning French to go to a bistro and or, you know, be able to order in Paris, etc. They pay us and they basically fund the operation so that in a place like Brazil or India or something like that, people are learning English in order to get a better job and they can't pay us. And, but the operation is funded by the people in the US who have a lot of money who are learning because they want to look you know, good in front of their friends to order in a, in a Paris bistro or something. So I feel pretty good about that. That's basically these people are funding the education of these other people. I think that's a really helpful frame. And then just a more specific note, uh, you know, as Duolingo has begun to teach subjects outside of just language learning, how do you all decide what subjects to target next? This is a good question because I spend a lot of my time thinking about that. The first thing is we have to be good at teaching that. There are some things that we're good at teaching at Duolingo and some things that we're not very good at. And in general, the things that we're very good at are teaching things that the way you learn them is by repetition. So. Music, you mainly learn by repetition. Elementary school math, you mainly learn by repetition. You just got to remember the multiplication tables like a million times. Language, you mainly learn by repetition. So those things we are going to work on. There are things that are more conceptual, like philosophy. You don't learn philosophy by repetition. We're unlikely to teach philosophy anytime soon. So that's one thing that comes into play. Another thing that comes into play is how many people actually want to learn this. There's probably some things that people that, that you would learn through repetition, but that are just like not that many people want to learn them. So we, we, you know, we look at that. Uh, and the other one is just how good we think it's, it's for the world. Uh, I mean, we think that teaching people math is, is good for the world. We think that people, teaching people languages is good for the world. Um, we think that teaching people, uh, I don't know, all the different Pokemons, not as good for the world. Not mm -hmm. necessarily bad, but just not as good for the world. Right. So you know, we, we try to tailor towards things that we think are, are better for the world. For me personally, you know, as a Duolingo user, who I frequently get too excited and try to learn more than one language at once. Is Duolingo designed to accommodate that without confusion? Yeah, it, it works pretty well. Now, I will say inherently, it's hard to learn more than one language at once because you do get confused. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I mean, in fact, I, I think I believe about 10% of our active users are learning more than one language and it works pretty well. But like, I mean, I think there's just an inherent limitation of the human brain that if you're trying to learn two things at once, you're going to get a little confused particularly if the languages are pretty similar to each other um, you get the, the more similar they are to each other the more confused you get so I, I think what I, what we've seen work better is when people are learning like Swedish and one and, and Japanese on the other one they're so different from each other that there's much less chance for confusion now I overheard a little bit about what you're talking about in your last session but so I definitely wanted to touch on that when you are trying to teach such a diverse range of topics and in a field that's not necessarily very diverse what are you guys doing to com combat that Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, by the way, the diverse sort of, you know, with language learning. So, the, you know, our biggest audience, of course, is in language learning. It's been, it's been, it's, we've had challenges uh, in that we have a very diverse audience. 
I mean, we have users in every single country in the world. And we're trying to, you know, teach a certain point of view that I think is a very progressive point of view, ultimately, where we say, for example, a lot of our exercises say, uh, she loves her wife, and stuff like that. Uh, in the US, in this day and age, that's a perfectly fine, normal thing to say. This is not true in most of Latin America. It is most definitely not true in Russia, where it's like illegal. Uh, and so, you know, we've, we, we tried really hard on this. What, what we've ultimately had to do is, for the topics that we teach, we actually have a committee uh, that tries to decide what is okay for which country. And it's not always the same. Um, and so we, we try to do that. And, and, and you know, an example, the, the most extreme example, and I, I really don't like this example, but in, in, in Russia, um, and this is before the war or anything, right? This is years ago. In Russia, we had to remove the overt mentions of LGBTQ stuff. We had to, and, and the reason for that is because we have contractors in Russia who would have been arrested had we not done that. So we decided, okay, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna do that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's it's this is not an easy thing to do when you have a very global audience, but we try to do what we can. What is it like working as a working in a tech company on the East Coast rather than in Silicon Valley? How's the culture different? No, we we definitely think of ourselves as a tech company. I mean, we the the, the people that we hire all you know are looking for jobs at a tech company, so we're definitely a tech company. The East Coast thing is a, there's there's. I would say there's a few differences. Probably the biggest one is, I would say, in Silicon Valley, there is a culture where people leave jobs very frequently. As in, like, they last on each job, call it two years. And that's it. And in that way, it's not, not a good or a bad thing. That's just how it is. And that does certain things to your culture. In the East Coast, that's a lot less pronounced. So employees at Duolingo last for a much longer time, which is, I think I like that, but I will admit it's not, not always necessarily good. One of the good things about the thing, you know, that happens in Silicon Valley is that people are changing jobs so much that there's so much knowledge transfer between all the companies because, well, you know, that person that you just hired worked before you worked at Google and before that at Uber and before that at, so they have all the knowledge that they've accumulated in all the other places. There's a lot of knowledge transfer. Mm -hmm. In a place like Duolingo, that's much less often. I mean, people, you know, those people have been there for eight, nine years. They didn't work at five other companies before that. May only have worked at one other company before that. So there's just, I think there's less knowledge transfer in that respect. The good thing is that there's a lot of institutional knowledge, which can be good, right? I mean, you know, when you only work at a company for two years, your first six months, you're just trying to figure out what the hell is going on. So you only contribute for a year and a half. Whereas I think we have a lot of people who've just been there for, for a long time and have a lot of good institutional knowledge. So it's different, but yeah, I'd say to me, that's probably the biggest difference. Great. And then I think we have time for one or two more questions. So I'll choose a lighthearted one here. Um, I'm sure you've seen a lot of the memes about Duolingo. Uh -huh. So and I know Dr. Burr Settles has spoken about the AI behind Duolingo notifications, yep. but why is the Duolingo owl so threatening? <laughs> <laughs> We didn't mean it to be threatening. It just it just kind of started happening. Um, you know, we actually wanted the Duolingo Owl to be a friendly creature, but um, I don't know. Over time, you know, the first thing that happened was that um, we added a notification. So we send you notifications, mm -hmm. and you know, but we don't send them to you forever. If you don't use Duolingo, we stop it after five days, and then the first thing that happened is we um, thought. 
well, if we're going to stop after five days, we should let you know that we're stopping. That's the nice thing to do. So we wrote a notification that on the fifth day we say, hey, these notifications don't seem to be working. I'm going to stop sending them to you. That was a very successful notification because it got people to come back because they felt that. But it's this passive aggressive thing. So that was the first mention of a passive aggressive thing that the owl ever did. And from then on, the meme started with like, oh, don't come back or I'll kidnap your, you know, your, your mother or your grandmother or something like that. And then, and then we leaned into it a little bit because, uh, well, because, you know, it's popular and we leaned into it. And kind of the ultimate expression of that is our TikTok. And, you know, if you've seen our TikTok, it's, it's insane. <laughs> and and it just, but it's just because, you know, it just kind of morphed into that. And, um, and at this point, you know, uh, the Dueling Wild is this like, um, it's kind of this double personality thing that is kind of like super friendly, but at the same time, a little bit of an anti-hero and so uh, but you know oh this was not all on purpose this just kind of evolved this way mm -hmm. and it's worked out pretty well for us but yeah, it's a fun evolution of your brand yeah. i'm glad you mentioned tiktok because my last question was going to be who is the genius running your tiktok but i can tell you the genius running our tiktok is a woman named zaria who's 22 years old who started out fresh out of college um and at some point she just said trust me with tiktok we trusted her with tiktok and um, she did some stuff that none of us understood, but was really uh, successful. And so we now just let her do it. Um, she's, she's, she's very good at it. Yeah, uh, she deserves everything. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, those are all my questions for you. So on behalf of myself and the Clark Forum, I thank you for sitting down and having this conversation with us today. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.